Welcome to another episode of the Gay Barchive Show, where we explore gay history, one bar at a time. I'm your host, Art Smith, and our guest today is Patrick Gallino, gay nightlife bon vivant and Stoli's LGBT ambassador. Well, welcome to the show, Patrick. Hey, Art Smith. It's a pleasure to be here. I am so excited to hear some of the stories you have to tell. Um, I know you've had a long history in uh, gay nightlife, and you're a bit of a performance artist on your own. So I'm really excited to hear about some of these clubs and what stories you have to tell. What surprised me a little bit is I noticed over the holidays, you posted from uh, back home, which apparently is Olean, New York. That is correct. Yep. It was my first trip back since the COVID pandemic began, and I had not seen my mother in almost two years. She um, is celebrating the 40th anniversary of her dance studio, Dance Arts, this year, and I couldn't be prouder of her. So let me guess, that that explains how you got into dance. (laughs) Well, yes, and there's actually a whole tangled web that fuses itself right into the history of gay bars and how everything Everything kind of merges and how life is full circle. But yes, that would would have been my inception into dance. So you mentioned to me that uh, one of your first experiences in a gay bar situation was in um, the town of, or the city of Buffalo, New York. And it was a club called Heat. Why don't you tell me a little bit about that bar? Okay, so wow, 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 wow. I'm so excited for this trip down sparkly memory lane. So, okay, so you mentioned Olean. So I, I am, I grew up in Olean, New York, and I'm just old enough to have been a part of the era when being gay was, as it still is in many places in the world, um, you know, a huge stigma. And Olean, New York, had no gay bars. The closest gay bars to only in New York were in Jamestown and Buffalo. And truly growing up, I was always a different child. And I, I, I knew that who I was was not only okay, but I knew exceptional. And somewhere out there, there was a world where I could be accepted. And truly it was the gay bars. And you know this, and this is a story for many people. The first time I walked into a gay bar was when the first time I felt attractive. I swear to God, after my first gay bar, I used to have this really weird mustache like we did in the 80s. I was wearing these big glasses. After my first night in a gay bar, I shaved that mustache, got contacts, and voila, because I felt attractive. And that's where I found my community. And for the first time in life, I didn't feel, I felt like I fit in. And it was Buffalo, New York and Jamestown where I found that community. Now, Club Heat, by the time Club Heat was announced to open, I had been on the scene maybe a couple years, and it was the very first bar opening I'd experienced as a a young gay man um, after the most popular bar had closed, which was Rumors in Buffalo, which preceded Club Heat. And by this time, I believe I I was going to school at the University of Buffalo, pursuing a musical theater dance degree. And I was so excited about this brand new club. I'd never experienced your old club closing, a new one coming. And the night it opened, I remember there were searchlights. Um, It seemed like all of Buffalo had shown up. 
drag queens, line around the block, and it was absolutely magic. Now, one thing that made Club Heat exciting was that they invested a lot in their staff and entertainment. And I remember on opening night, they announced they had formed the Heat Meat Dancers. And they were the probably the four at the time, the four hunkiest guys in Buffalo, New York. I remember one really nice guy, I think his name was Cameron. He had one of those really cool 80s haircuts. It was like braids, really short on one side, and then they got progressively longer on the other, the asymmetrical cut. Um, there was this really great dancer named Joe, who actually I had met as part of the cast of West Side Story probably about a year before. And so the Heat Me dancers, oh my God, they took to the center of the dance floor, absolutely incredible dancers, and how I wished I could have been a Heat Me dancer. Well, they lasted about two, three months. Joe got a job um, working for some new bar opening in New York City. Cameron went on to do some sort of national tour. It was the middle of winter and there were no dancers to be found in Buffalo. So somehow, my boyfriend at the time, who was an incredible dancer, a very skinny, tiny guy, but just beautiful body, great dancer. Um, he got hired to be replaced and somehow they hired me to be one of the heat meat dancers. My boyfriend totally fit it. I mean, he would, you know, in his little thong, dancing up on the box. And I, at the time, was convinced that I had to wear absolutely the height of 80s fashion, meaning the big shoulder pads. You remember the little cinched, double-breasted coat? And, um, and I remember we got about $30 a night, some tips. Um, but after a, about, I think it was maybe three weeks, I decided, no, I think I'm going to retire from being a heat meat dancer and stick with musical, musical theater. Now, one thing about Club Heat beyond the heat meat dancers and, 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 you know, the Madonna cranking out nightly. Um, one of the things that made the biggest impact on me was there was a coat check guy at Club Heat and he would sit you know, very meekly all night, just taking coats, giving out numbers. And every Saturday night, it must have been somewhere between 1 and 3 a.m. because, of course, bars were open till 4. He would come out of the coat check booth, go up to the dance floor, and he would be met by this stunning woman in a full ball gown who would come to Club Heat somewhere between 1 and 3 a.m., the dance floor would clear and he and this beautiful woman would take to the floor and begin dancing foxtrot and waltz. And to me, that was absolutely magical because while Club Heat at that time was my community center, my, it was my safe space. It's where I felt attractive. I also so, saw this elegance in the middle of a dance club that I had never experienced before. And you never know how something's going to make an impression on you. But I know every Saturday night seeing these couple dance reminded me of a certain elegance in class. And I began taking ballroom lessons with my mother actually. And as my life story progressed, I eventually moved to San Francisco to be a part of the first same-sex ballroom dance competition in North America, believe it or not, the National Dance Council of America has prohibit, ha, prohibited in their rules two couples of the same gender from dancing together, which is outrageous. So San Francisco being very progressive, I moved there to do that. And then as my San Francisco journey continued and I became a professional 
um, competitor. Um, I would go out to the clubs in San Francisco and practice my cha-cha, my, my hustle, my samba, either by myself or with a willing partner. And meanwhile, in the dance studio, I would have many female students, lovely women, who are actually fairly conservative but curious about the nightlife world. And so I had this mission that I wanted to fuse these worlds together. And I ended up creating an event called Dancing with the Drag Stars with Cheryl Burke from Dancing with the Stars as a way to get these two different worlds that I loved, nightlife and ballroom, into one world. And that was very much inspired by what I would see every Saturday night at Club Heat. And then interestingly, that directly led to uh, a job I've had the pleasure of holding for about 12 years as LGBTQ ambassador with Stoli Group. But that's another story we might touch on, but that's my Club Heat memory. So you kind of piqued my interest. And when I, when I um, spoke to a few friends of mine who are from Buffalo, a couple of them remembered Heat. And one of them had mentioned to me that um, I think it was on Delaware Avenue. And so I started doing this research. And the club itself, the structure that it was in, is kind of interesting. The building, as I understand it, at the time it opened as Club Heat, was like a 200-year-old residence. It had been built in the in the 19th century uh, mm-hmm. and was this old house. It's very large. It's about 6,000 square feet, but um, not the entire space, I don't think, was used for the bar. I think it was only part of the front, right? Right. Yeah. And, but it, as you said, yeah, it was a very unique space. It was a you know, standalone building, um, and it definitely had that feel like the guy, the the guy who did coat check who would come up to dance with his partner every Saturday, he was down. It was like a stairwell that seemed like you were in someone's house. And then when you went up it, the the dance floor felt like this huge, massive living room where the living room would have been. Yeah. And the house itself has a little bit of history. Um, It was a restaurant, I think in the um, earlier part of the 20th century called the Chateau. And then it later became the uh, round table restaurant, which was owned by George Steinbrenner. Oh, and, wow. Um, the history books indicate that George Steinbrenner actually held the meeting when he made the decision in 1973 to buy the Yankees in that very building. So that building was also part of, you know, American history with, you know, the Yankees and, and baseball and, and so on. Um, it through its its multiple years of operation, it was also known at some point as Club Cobalt, Club Aluminum, um, and Club One Fifty Three. One Fifty Three being the street address for the building. Mm-hmm. Wow, Art! I am I am learning a lot that I I did not know as a as a young gay man. And we're posting some pictures up here of what the property looks like. It is actually still there. The building still exists. It's the only 19th century home in that part of Buffalo, right on Delaware Street. And Mm -hmm. it is a freestanding house surrounded by two monstrous parking lots because the whole neighborhood has been taken over by um, the municipal courts and the police and everything else. Mm -hmm. So it's all public buildings around it. But the house is still there. And it was recently purchased, I don't know, maybe 10 years ago or five years ago. Uh, by a private individual, and he is in the process of uh, rehabilitating it and kind of bringing it back. When it was Club Heat, was it blue at that time? 
Oh my gosh, was it blue? I mean, I mean, you know, everything at night looks, you know, glittery in my mind and pink. So, <laughs> but I think it, I think it might. Yes, you know what? I think it was blue. It's it was originally a red brick house. Uh-huh. It is now once again red brick. It's been sandblasted, but for a long time, um, from what I understand, in the the late '80s into the 2000s. It had a nickname of Big Blue because it was painted this bizarre shade of blue. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I know you're you're absolutely correct. Um, wow. Yeah, club heat. You know, I would drive when I would go home for Christmas or I remember there was a period of about a year where I was back in Olean helping my mom with, with her studio. Um, you know, I would drive up to club heat in the middle of like a blizzard and it might take you know, two, three hours to get there just to go out for a couple hours. Um, yeah, I wish, I wish you and I could have twirled on the dance floor at Club Heat Art. I didn't know you back then. Yeah, and I've never been to Buffalo. Well, it's, it, it has, as you noted, it has a lot of history. Um, and uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's a very special place in my memory. So as you mentioned um, briefly a few minutes ago, after Buffalo, you transitioned to San Francisco to be in a little bit more uh, liberal and accepting and openly gay environment. And um, you had some experiences for the bar there that from my understanding was known to be predominantly an Asian clientele. It was a bar called N Touch. Yes, that is correct. And actually I first discovered N Touch, which was on Polk Street in San Francisco, which used to be the neighborhood. It was very. It was a very gay street. Right now, I think there's only one true gay bar left, the Cinch on Polk Street, great bar. But um, in it was the first time I discovered it was in about 1993, and I was on this crazy adventure after having lived in, gone to school and lived in London, England for a while, and I decided to leave and check out Hawaii, Honolulu, for a couple of weeks, thinking maybe I wanted to live there one day, and then. Um, I made it over right after to San Francisco. And this was again about 93. And I discovered the Untouch. And in my mind, it was this massive club. Um, of course, you and I both know, fast forward to when I actually did move to San Francisco and went back in, in 2003, I wondered what happened. Did it shrink? But Because <laughs> it was actually very, a long, narrow bar and then tiny little dance floor off to the right on the end. But what was magical for me about the end touch, and you mentioned that it largely was an Asian bar, I mean, the, most of the customers and the, and the dancers were in fact Asian, was that um, having grown up in Western New York where, you know, very heteronormative and, you know, the predominant race were white people, being sort of of the ilk I was, um, and having had the discovery of gay bars as being the places where I felt safe. Um, I also discovered at this time that I wanted to be as far away from people who looked like me and the experiences I'd had growing up as possible. And so Touch was probably the most ex- exotic crowd I'd ever been around for that reason. I actually am sure I was labeled for a period of time um, a rice queen because I I was like, you know, drop me in the middle of anywhere in the world besides Western New York. And I'm going to feel more at home 
um, the more diversity, the better. And it was such, yeah, such a, uh, I just thought it was incredible when I did move back years later, that became definitely my Friday, Saturday, Saturday night spot to be. Now, one of the things that I've heard about and touch is that it was, um, it was well known for having mirrored wall paneling inside the bar. <laughs> or is that something yes. that came later? Uh, no, I seem to remember mirrored paneling in the bar. Yes. Yes. Um, yeah. I mean, mirrors were very popular way back in the bars, weren't they? I, I remember, and I think there might be one left in San Francisco, the mirroring that was put in restrooms as well, which always <laughs> made a bit uncomfortable to be quite frank. Um, but yeah, yeah, but it was, um, you know, such a, such, such a great space, always packed, always packed. Um, I remember I actually worked there one night. Um, part of my San Francisco journey was I began to get um, a lot of work besides teaching dance, working, doing promotions within nightlife for different spirit companies. And one brand I briefly worked for was a really strange product called Wet Willies. It was basically a pre-packaged jello shot. And um, I was hired along with my boyfriend at the time to be the Wet Willies guys. And <laughs> I, um, I may have been the only non-Asian ever to uh, actually work in such a capacity. Um, and it was actually, as a matter of fact, that night that I met my good friend, Michael Daniels, who works in the spirits industry, who fast forward a few years later, I believe was directly responsible for referring me to Stoli. So again, you never know what, what what's going to happen, who you're going to meet when you're out and about. That is so end. true. Yeah. And did you find when you moved to San Francisco, is that when your kind of flamboyant outfits started to emerge or had they already come, you know, come to the forefront in, in Buffalo? Well, you know, I think my whole life, especially having been a stage person and surrounded by costumes, I'd, I'd always had an affinity for costuming, but it definitely was during my, you know, when I moved to San Francisco in 2003 that, and I had been actually in Dallas for a few years before, um, where I'd gotten very heavily involved in ballroom dancing. But when I moved to San Francisco, I put myself on this new journey of letting myself become a club kid, meaning for the, really the first time in my life, I began going to the gym, um, working out, and going to the bigger clubs and just letting loose and dancing. And I began to take my ballroom dance um, outfits and add more rhinestones and accessories, feathers, and began wearing those out as my club kid persona. And that's really how it began. And then by the time I was... Um, as an example, had the chance to create Dancing with the Drag Stars, that persona had pretty much full on blossomed. And San Francisco taught me a lesson in that, you know, way back, and this was way back in the club heat days and, and even a couple of years before when I first discovered the bars, I started doing a little bit of drag. I actually entered, I think it was the Miss Gay Jamestown pageant, 1990 or something. Um, and then I, I, I realized, wow, that's a commitment. So let me think about this for a decade or two or three. But in San Francisco, it was explained to me that I was doing drag. And I remember pushing back saying, no, 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 I'm not doing drag because in my mind, and I think in the mind of a lot of people, doing drag means you are 
a drag queen or a king or a female impersonator. But what I found was a real authenticity in the definition of drag as manifesting your most powerful inner self. And I have always in my mind, when I've, since I've been a kid, when I've pictured a difficult situation, I've always pictured myself on a cliff, but that version of myself has long hair and a big long cape and is definitely a woman. And so, you know, we all have shades of masculine, feminine, gay and straight. And San Francisco gave me the opportunity to explore and truly become my most authentic self, including expression in the way that I dressed, which was very much, again, going back to Western New York and only in New York, I felt like someone was choking me so much of my life growing up and when I would return to Western New York. And what it was, was this, even as confident as I was, that who I was was correct. There was so much suffocation inclusive of don't, you can't put on makeup. Only girls do that. That that happened to me more than once. When I picked up my sister's concealer, thought, hey, I've got, you know, a blemish. Let me put that on. Um, being told, I, I remember being told, don't cross your legs that way, Patrick. That's how girls cross. I remember shopping in the women's department at maybe JCPenney's or wherever it was because I didn't like what I saw in the big boxy clothes for boys in small towns. And Finally, it's amazing how we don't realize when you grow up at a certain time or in certain countries around the world where you don't have gay bars, where you don't have community centers, the impact that can have on someone's life forever that needs to be broken through one way or the other. And San Francisco was that moment for me when I finally broke through a lot of restraints on myself that I didn't realize existed. And that, and that included, interestingly, ballroom and why I really tried to bring these worlds together of ballroom and nightlife because ballroom for all the chivalry and the beauty that I saw way back at Club Heat it also had rules saying no but you illogical rules you can't touch each other and dance if you're that's the same gender that doesn't make any sense so the clothes for me and that persona were a wonderful beautiful offshoot of breaking through a lot of the boundaries of homophobia and oppression and I wish everyone could have the same experience. I had a similar conversation in an interview I did a couple of days ago. Um, I'm sure you're familiar with the name, but I was interviewing Ernie Glam. Mm -hmm. and, um, we were talking about the whole club kid scene and how it was kind of a precursor to today's, you know, non-binary gender bending concept that even though nobody referred to themselves that way, the whole concept was to, to be flamboyant and expressive and cross gender boundaries and do things that were unexpected and in a, some areas, you know, frowned upon, but you were just being you, you were letting your, your soul free and yes. expressing yourself. You know, so many people have images of the clubs of the club kids scene as being this, you know, drug riddled thing where everybody was, you know, complete crack addict or something. And in reality, the core of it was more like what we're seeing in today's, you know, non-binary scene of people just saying, hey, if I want to wear heels, I'm going to wear heels. And yes. it doesn't mean I want to be a woman. It doesn't mean I, you know, anything. It means that I want to wear heels. Yeah. And, and that's what it should be. We shouldn't have to 
overthink it or go through all these layers of shame, do that, don't do that, and all the voices, you know, of, of people that have told us not to be who we are. It's really very simple. Be yourself, liberate your spirit, be authentic. And, you know, for me and a lot of people, you know, it's interesting because it was as much about, it wasn't about shocking people and it's still not. It's about being, finding yourself. And I think there are people out there who like to shock other people because you know what, sometimes you got to do that to get people to think and to, you know, realize they're being ridiculous by oppressing the way other people should look, talk or dress, you know, but the world needs more fabulous and in the movement that we've seen for non-binary fluidity, all of that is just, just, just incredible. And so after you had your, your big coming out experience in San Francisco and uh, proverbially letting your hair down, you then managed to move to New York City. I did. Well, actually, so New York has, has a long and storied, storied history in that. Um, so I did after, well, while I was in San Francisco, I basically made a comeback to New York in that um, my work with Stoli Group meant that I had the opportunity to frequently travel back to New York for production events and to visit the, the Stoli office on 57th and Lexington. And I, I was able to form a whole new relationship with New York. But the fact is, you know, I first visited New York probably in 89 on a um, state, state University of Fredonia dance department trip to New York. And I first discovered Splash actually at the end of the same adventure I was on leaving London to go to Hawaii, then San Francisco. I then flew across the country to try to go back into London, where I was convinced I was going to, I think, marry a friend of mine who was a girl so I could get citizenship to be with this guy that I had been dating. And then I was going to form a band with my friend Tom. And I was going to be a tap dancing drag queen, I think. Anyway, none of that happened. That's another story. They didn't let me in the country. And that's for my book or another time. But I had to go back, leave London, go back to New York. And it was on that trip that a friend invited me to come see this hot new bar. And it was called Splash. And it was at the time, just, I believe at that time, just one floor, long and skinny. They had uh, surfboards for tables. They had little bleachers in the back. This was right around the time when um, the Sherry Vine, Shaquita um, were just breaking onto the scene. They were very young. Lady Bunny, well, even back then, I don't think Lady Bunny was very young. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but it was a really magical time, and Splash was a part of that. And, and it was subsequent after that that I ended up living in New York. Splash was such a neat bar because it was always reinventing. And it almost right away began, um, you know, adding. The, the, the one thing that I think was there right away that was just really magical was they had showers behind the bar and they would have shower dancers in their swimwear um, dancing. They would have contests. Um, they expanded and, and opened up a downstairs level with another bar. You, it was one of the best cruising bars because you could do this infinite loop from down up, the upstairs looking at the shower dancers. You could go downstairs, down a long corridor with, with some dark area that I, I don't think I was scared to go in. I don't know what was back there. There was a time it seemed when all New York bars had dark rooms, right? Um, and 
and yeah, and you could do a full loop. Um, interestingly, and I know I've mentioned Stoli a few times because it's played such an important part in my life. Just an interesting fact is that it was at Splash, I'm remembering, that um, I became a Stoli drinker for life. And it was in 96. I was working um, part-time when I wasn't doing dance gigs at a bar in the West Village called Jekyll and Hyde, a restaurant, horror-themed bar, really crazy. And um, I remember one Sunday night walking over to Splash with a couple friends. And I remember Stoli Vanilla had just been released and there was some sort of a really great special in Stoli Vanilla. I, I absolutely loved it. But also I remember at the time that the brand was supporting a fairly new organization, which you'll know, and a lot of your listeners, Broadway Cares, Equity Fights AIDS. And that made such an impact on me as a young consumer. I mean, hey, marketing works for the rest of my life. I mean, long before I ever, ever um, had the opportunity to work with Stoli, I, I was a Stoli cold drinker. So for me, that's one um, one thing for which I blame Splash <laughs> in that without without them. And um, that's still that's still even Ellen Broadway Care, Broadway Cares Equity Fight Saves affiliation. I may never have um ended up working with Stoli. And interestingly, the way life goes full circle, um, I began volunteering with Broadway Cares as a result of that and, 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 you know, assisting with their incredible Broadway Bears production. Fast forward years later, and um, as it turns out, when I was doing Dancing with the Drag Stars in San Francisco, two people in the audience were the founders of the Richmond Ermit Aid Foundation, my friends Ken Henderson and Joe Seiler, who um, run an organization which is a sister organization to Broadway Cares Equity Fights AIDS, raising money for those um, living with the disease to help people thrive. And then today also um, fundraising for the homeless and hungry. And today I am still on the board of that organization, just in, does incredible work. And so it's interesting thinking about the history of bars. You're making me really think about this, these moments and bars and how they can impact your life because of Splash, it's possible that that I that was another touchstone to becoming a Stoli ambassador and also a touchstone to my passion for working with the foundations of which I'm a part today. Now, a lot of people, um, especially younger people, don't realize the impact that bars had on us and our development as gay individuals. When you go back and look at especially people who have been out since the 70s or the 80s or the 90s, before gay rights were really prominent. I mean, in a lot of places, even into the 80s and the early 90s, it was illegal for two men to sleep together. You know, yes. there were sodomy laws everywhere. And um, there was still a lot of uh, police interaction with nightclubs giving, you know, harassing customers and, you know, all these kind of things. And the bars were really our community centers. They were where not only did we get to evolve our personalities and become who we knew inside that we were, but it also allowed us to connect with the people that supported, you know, our ideas. And, and that's how these organizations, almost every major gay organization that you can mention had some roots in a bar. Yes. You know, it may have started in somebody's dining room table but the funding, the fundraising for it, the support of it, the rallies were all coordinated by the bar scene. And that's why they were so important to us because we couldn't go out at that time uh, to a public space and expect to meet like-minded gay people and just have a conversation you know, on a street corner. That wasn't very likely. So yeah. 
it, it really was a very formative part of our uh, growing up as a community and making us the community that we are today, where we have such diversity and so many support organizations and, you know, so many people, whether they're celebrities or they're, you know, business owners being involved in supporting the causes that we feel are important to us. Yes. I, I, um, you know, it's, it's, I'm so grateful that we have evolved quicker than I thought we would to having marriage equality in many countries, including the United States. But again, we have have to remember there are many countries where people are killed, you know, assassinated, murdered by their own family for being gay. So the, the work is, is not yet done, but I, 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 um, you know, it's interesting looking back. I mean, as I mentioned, I, there, but for the grace of God, I mean, I know there was a time when I didn't think I was going to live past 30 and a lot, and that was not because I'm, I'm a naturally positive person, but there was something about growing up being told every day, you know, that being gay is wrong and don't dress that way. Don't look that way. And, you know, that's a root for a lot of people who, who, who don't make it into their full lives is because it's not being gay. It's, it's that society, the things that are said, but also sometimes the things that aren't said, you know, families that don't tell their gay kids that they love them or don't tell them that they would support their wedding if they were to get married and there, but for the grace of God. And, you know, I, I, you know, had an incident when I was a kid where I had, gym teacher trying to rip my clothes off and throw me into the shower with kids shouting faggot and names at me because I didn't feel comfortable at 12 or 13 years old getting undressed in a in a in a, in a gym and um, I was holding on to a, a pole and um, I I heard this voice saying hang on Patrick hang on it's going to be okay I heard that voice and call it what you will you know it, the inner spirit what God truly is but there was something about that voice that was other. It was, I believe, and I truly believe this, part of that voice was, was Harvey Milk. Part of that voice were so many who have come before. And that gave me the strength to stand up for and, and believe uh, who I am is okay. But I dreamed of a place and I didn't find it in high school. And when I finally was Lad's Bar in Purchase, New York, going to visit my there's one girl I had a crush on who turned out to be a raging lesbian years later, and she's fabulous, my friend Diana. She was going to the conservatory there. The night that she said, hey, you want to go try to get a fake ID in Times Square and then uh, go out to a bar? And we got scammed on our first attempt, but we got an ID and um, went out to this bar. I had had all these ideas in my head that bar, when you, by what I'd been told, that if you go into a gay bar, it was just going to be this scene of, you know, sex and disrespect and, and seediness. And when I walked into this beautiful bar called Lads in Purchase, New York, and it was pristine. And I remember I won the door prize. It was like a huge $25 bar tab, I think. And they had a, a, a nice shirtless man walking around passing out chocolates. That, that actually was the day when I shaved my mustache the next day and got rid of my glasses. And something changed in me. I mean, I could literally cry right now for, with that memory. It changed my entire life. And yes, if there had been a community center that wasn't a bar or an organization or maybe a friend who, as I was growing up, had said, who you are is okay. And I didn't have to rely on this mystical voice. Thank God for that. You know, who knows how my life would have turned out. But at best, because of the bars and that experience, 
you know, that that gave me the chance to begin developing normally. And when I hear people say things, you know, and, and by all means, we need to drink responsibly. And and there's all talk of within the gay community, substance abuse and all. You know what? You know, a lot of that is because we didn't have the community centers, because we didn't have families that loved us. But in my life, I have had an obsession since then with where the gay bars are. When I would travel with this group called Shazam, um, that based in Deer Park, Long Island, where we would travel to little towns around the United States to be the dancers from New York at the bar mitzvah or wedding, um, you know, I would be the one calling the community centers if I could find one and saying, where's the gay bar? And then figuring out how to get us there. And, and it's because of that emotional impact that the, that the bar had for me. And interestingly, be careful what you wish for. I believe that's one of the reasons why I gave up an amazing career in ballroom dancing to accept a six month contract that's now become 12 years with it with Stoli because it's a platform with an iconic brand to have a reason to be and discover so many of the bars there today and help steer a younger generation, reminding people, no, it's not all about going out and, and drinking. That's, that's the last thing it's really about. It's about the fact that if you have had that emotional connection of your life basically being saved by finding the reality of what was, it was a bar. And it's a place where alcohol was and always will be served. And then fast forward to, the, to, to being able to work in this position to bring entertainment, to fundraise, and making sure that the sort of hurt that I went through, many people went through, um, I'm sure you've had your experiences, but to be a steward of a generation that can be free, authentic, feel community, and then make things better. That's what it's all about. Yeah, it's, it's emotional. Absolutely, and my, my bar that, um, that kind of not only started this project, but also really kind of kicked my gay awareness uh, in was a bar in Atlanta by the name of Backstreet. And I had been living in Nashville, Tennessee. I had been going to a couple of local gay bars there, but they weren't anything really special. They were, you know, places to go hang out and whatever. And my boyfriend at the time and I took a trip for New Year's Eve, 1982-83 um, to Atlanta and had never been there before. Mm -hmm. And we went out to Backstreet, and here's this massive three- or four-story bar packed with thousands of mostly gay men, uh, a lot of them shirtless on the dance floor, everybody having a great time, everybody being friendly and interactive. And it was kind of an epiphany. It was like, wow, we have a community out here. We have, you know, family. There are people like us, and literally one week, after New Year's, Chris and I moved to Atlanta. Wow. So that, and that is why this whole project has become so important to me because my Facebook group, the Gay Archives Facebook group, is barely over a year old. And as of today, we have almost 3,200 members. And these people are sharing stories from bars from 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago. Um, one interview I did, the guy was talking about his first gay bar experience in 1953. That's 70 years ago almost. So um, this whole project has been, you know, so rewarding to me for that reason. Yeah, I, I, I love that you mentioned that, that there are so many people 
there are so many people still, you know, alive today, like, you know, older, certainly older than I am. And anytime I get the chance to sit down and talk to, you know, a person, man, woman, or other who, um, who is, you know, 60, 70, 80, 90, 100 years old, who, you know, survived, thank God, the, the, you know, the, the AIDS epidemic before we had treatments. Um, I take that opportunity and feel blessed to, to, and I recommend to anyone, you know, if you're a kid, if you're, you know, 21, 25, just coming out and, and you have a community like that, you know, respect, respect and listen to, if you meet someone who can tell you about what it used to be like, take that opportunity, you know, gratitude for those who've come before. So another bar that you had mentioned to me in our previous conversation is one that I stumbled across, um, I don't know, probably about 20 odd years ago, right around 20 years ago. Um, I was assigned to go to uh, San Juan to write an article for a um, men's lifestyle magazine, similar to Maxim. It was a magazine called Liquid. And I was chosen to go to Puerto Rico and cover the Heineken Jazz Fest. And they, I didn't know anything about Puerto Rico. I didn't know anything about gay life there. They put me in the hotel, the Marriott uh, on Condado Beach with the Stellaris Casino downstairs. And I checked into the motel, the hotel up on the 18th floor, looking out at the beach and enjoying the, you know, being in Puerto Rico. And that night I decided I was going to explore a little bit. And I went downstairs to the lobby and I walked uh, across the beach from our hotel to the next property. And I saw a bunch of people up there on the patio having a great time drinking, you know, it was colorful and sounded like a great time. So I walked up the steps and I said, I'm going to go up here and have a beer and sit on the patio. And lo and behold, it was the Atlantic Beach Hotel and Bar, which is right next yes. to the Marriott. And I know you've got some stories from there. So why don't you tell us about your experience in San Juan? Yeah, so I um, spent quite a few months, almost a year, um, working as a dancer and cruise ship staff member on what was it at the time it was a huge ship the tropical which i think is, has now been sold off to be like a dinghy somewhere around greece but um but i um was on this contract where we would we would do these week cruises our home port was san juan we would go all the way down to la guaira venezuela this was back when it was very pretty pretty much safe to go um and we would stop in aruba san juan guadalupe or sorry san juan was our home port guadalupe um and a, a, a bunch of probably like five five six stops one day at sea and you know the caribbean is still not necessarily known as being the most gay-friendly location although like the dominican republic i was just there that, that that was great but at the time um it was only san juan that had a gay ba gay bars or indoor hotels and the atlantic beach hotel every saturday which was the day we would um arrive clean up the ship and we would leave again that night around 10 the atlantic beach hotel was like the um, like you know that heavens parted and and that was what i looked forward to every week on that cruise of doing like five shows six shows a week calling bingo you know doing games around the pool i would just couldn't wait and it was this hotel that again in my mind it was this opulent hotel in my mind where one day i i, I decided i would have enough make enough money to come back and, and stay for a week and outside was just the most fabulous patio and everyone was there 
locals, people from the ships, you know, they would have drag shows. I, I, I had more pina coladas on that patio than I, I can care to think of. I remember, and, and it was interesting because I was in Dominican Republic um, in November with two good friends of mine who are owners of a great bar in New York now on Boxers. They have several locations and some new bars that they've opened, but um, we were reminiscing and they remembered the Atlantic Beach Hotel and being there about the same time that I was. And we, we all remembered that there was the owner who they called, lovingly called Sourpuss. And he was this little guy, probably the time he probably would have been about 60, 70, maybe at the time. But I remember he, he just was always really miserable. And I remember him walking over to two, two guys who I think were, gave a peck on the cheek. And I remember him walking over, shaking his little finger and saying, and no kissing. There are straight people here too, which I just thought was outrageous. Like why own a gay bar if you're not letting people be themselves? So Sourpuss was the owner. Um, but what a wonderful place. Um, I, years later, it's probably about seven years ago, I, I woke up one morning in New York after being at the Stoli office and it was snowing in New York and I decided I was going to get on a plane that afternoon and go back to Puerto Rico for the first time since I think it was 91. I turned 21 on the ship and um, I got, I did it. I got on a plane, which just spontaneously went to, landed in San Juan and I, I booked seven days at the Atlantic beach. And I was so excited thinking I'm going to get there. It's going to be packed and things are going to be built up and even better. And um, the Atlantic beach was there. Nobody was on that deck. And um, I went up to my room in the old rickety elevator. And I think my way, literally my window fell in <laughs> while I was unpacking. I'm so glad I went back. I went, I was uh, at that bar every day, the bar, there was a bartender, but it wasn't what I remembered. And San Juan is still gorgeous. Go by all means. But, um, but their gay community hadn't really flourished. I think there's maybe, maybe one gay bar open right now, but what memories back in 91? And when I was following up on the Atlantic beach, just to see what, you know, what was going on there now, because I thought by now, maybe somebody had knocked it down and built a new hotel next to it, but the building still stands. And um, as of very recently, they actually renamed the hotel, and I thought oh. it was hysterical. They painted the hotel, and um, I believe it's now blue. And the name oh. of it is the Trist, T-R-Y-T. Oh. Okay. <laughs> which is kind of ironic because that's it was kind of a hookup hotel bar for me when I was staying in San, in San Juan, since it was right uh-huh. next to my hotel. But... Um, but yeah, it's still there, but it, it is not a gay venue anymore. So, oh, so it finally, finally did um, cease to be Atlantic Beach. Yeah, because when I when I was there a few years ago, I'm, so I'm even more grateful that I got to go back, knowing that that it, it no longer exists. Um, but yeah, it 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 was not what it was. But uh, but what what a memory! And I remember being at the Atlantic Beach Hotel and. Um, and sitting at a table on a crowded day, and the um, I believe there's a guy named Cur- Curly, and I think he was like a pianist. He he was in the piano bar on our ship, the, the MS Tropical. And I remember him leaning over and saying to me, "Now, um, you know, don't stare, but but at that table next to us, and there was a group of, of of guys. I think there was one woman. He said, those people are actually planning the first ever gay cruise line." And in fact, that's true that I, I think it was, was it RSVP? Um, and when I was on the ships, you know, 
I, again, I was very open. I, I was best friends with all the cabin crew and, you know, I, I love the people I work with, but, but there was a lot of homophobia. You know, there's a lot of homophobia. I got a lot of criticism. I actually got occasionally, probably every week, you know, a passenger comic card that was read to me by the cruise director saying that that one dancer um, needs to be more masculine. Can you imagine? And, and that was really, I think, one of the only jobs in my life that I, I, I left my second contract early because of the perceived homophobia that was just getting to be too much. But I did some outrageous things. In between my my stops at the Atlantic Beach Hotel, um, I definitely pushed the envelope. I actually held a drag competition um, between myself and there was one other fairly openly gay guy also named Patrick who came off the ship. And we decided as entertainment for the guys in the kitchen and the bartenders and the, the you know the guys who clean the cabins, um, they all had a, a lot of them had a night off. So we staged this um, MS Tropical drag pageant extraordinaire, and I named myself after the captain. I was Bianca Catunia, when we made like <laughs> vote for the King or Queen style posters and plastered them all around and the, the captain got wind of it and was furious, but it was fun. So you mentioned that you were recently in Dominican Republic and uh, with the owners of boxers. Is one of those Bob Fluitt? So, oh, I love Bob. So, okay. So there are a lot of Bobs, <laughs> boxers. So there's Bob Fluitt, who, um, um, who, who's great, but, but in the Dominican Republic, um, Bob and Rob, who are, they, they're both named Robert, but one goes by Rob, one goes by Rob, an incredible couple. And they also are owners of boxers and, um, just amazing guys who, um, have really embraced the Dominican Republic and, and they do a lot of good down there. Oh, so their bars in the Dominican Republic. Oh, no, no, no. So they have, so no, no. So they are, they, they are part owners of boxers in New York. I know that they were just there for New Year's, but they actually have a home in the Dominican Republic. So that's their getaway. Yeah. And they're very much, it was, you know, my first trip and it was just magical to be there with them because they've really become a part of the community and, and really do a lot of great things. So it was a great way to um, experience my first trip. That said, there is one really amazing gay bar um, in Santo Domingo, and it's really the only place where there's a, an active gay bar. And the owner, um, I, I was connected to him before I went by my friend Douglas Simonson, who is an incredible artist living in um, Puerto Vallarta, Mexico, who I had met in 2006 on my first trip to Asia in Bangkok. And um, he lived in, in the Dominican Republic for a while and, and connected me to the owner of the bar there called Eseduco. I, I think that's it, Eseduco. Um, two stories, um, um, the, the place to be. It's, it's just, just incredible. So if anyone out there is going to Santo Domingo, definitely Eseduco is where you want to center yourself. And that's what I did. I've known a number of people that were very active in the gay nightlife scene that have kind of moved down to the islands. In fact, a friend of mine that I've known for about 40 years uh, was an event planner in Nashville, Tennessee, by the name of Ron Sanford. And mm -hmm. uh, he did a lot of big, extravagant productions, both for the gay community and the mainstream corporate communities. Um, I believe he's in Punta Cana now. He bought a couple oh. of places down there. And if I'm not mistaken, he just organized the very first Punta Cana Pride this year, this last year, 2021. And um, I think there's also a, a bar there that he might be connected with in Punta Cana. So, oh, interesting. So you will, you'll have to give me his information for next I time I go over. You know, that's one of the things that I'm, I'm learning to get excited about um, having recently moved last year from 
California, a, a state that I was more in love with the day I left, and I will always be my, my forever home, San Francisco. But I moved to um, the Fort Lauderdale area. As a matter of fact, I live kitty corner, so exciting, from the Stonewall National Archives. And of course, I went in and bought my family membership for um, for my roommate and I, and which is just an incredible place. I know you've been there, but um, but living in South Florida, um, as hard as it was to move, the proximity to so many great places in, right. in the Caribbean and South America, Rio de Janeiro, I've been been discovering um, over the last three years. Took a break, of course, because of COVID, and recently went back. So it's so many incredible places to explore. And I wish there was enough time to visit every single country and an amazing gay community in the world. But you and I are sure trying to do that. And, you know, I forgot one thing. We were talking about Splash. Um, just having this memory, I, I mentioned way back in the Club Heat days or the Heat Meet Dancers. And they disbanded and, and one moved to New York. I just remembered the, the one, his name was Joe. One of the Heat Meet Dancers ended up at Splash. He was a bartender who I reconnected with. Um, and I, you know, I just remembered not only was I at Splash right when it opened full circle, I was there when it closed. I, I think I was there for, um, the first of two years of Stoli Guy, which was a touring competition to find, um, passionate and amazing guys who wanted to showcase their dedication to community and talents on stage. And we did an event at Splash, I think two weeks before it closed. And it may have been one of the very last events that ever happened, 2013. All these memories are that you're, you're so good at evoking. <laughs> Speaking of Stoli, um, in the last 12 years, Stoli has really given you not only a platform to, um, to speak about your causes and to do things for the community, but also to show off your extravagant outfits. I mean, I have seen more pictures of you at Stoli event <laughs> in sequins and feathers and and you know military type uniforms and all kinds of things. It runs the gamut. It's um that must have been a, an amazing experience to be working with Stoli for that long and traveling with uh, them around the country. Yeah, isn't isn't that amazing? I mean, I I never would have I never you know largely because I was mar marginalized. I mean, I was third in my class in high school. I thought I could have, you know, could have gone anywhere. And I remember being told by, by, it was an admissions person or a guidance counselor, a couple people telling me I was too gay to go into any sort of a career as, um, you know, a politician or a doctor or anything, anything in the real world. So I, over time, you know, created my own path and my own work in, in industries and entertainment that would accept me. And I never entertained that I would ever in my life want to work for anything, even remotely related to a corporate world or a company. And how fascinating to me when I look back that not only is it true that Stoli was a part of my important bar experience, you know, I was a Stoli drinker, but in a very magical time in my life where I could have gone in, in a few different directions with my career and my passion, um, that the opportunity with Stoli came along. And as I mentioned, I agreed to, to just help them out for six months. I had a couple decades of experience in nightlife. I had been doing promotions with other brands and managing as just part-time work. And um, right away, you know, first of all, every single person, almost every single person in a position of leadership with Stoli through all the different transitions that the company has had has been um, unbelievably authentic. And right away, 
the, you know, I'm, I, the first gentleman named Mark Carson, who was the marketing director for the West, you know, took me to dinner and let me know. He was like, you know, Patrick, I know you may only want to do this for a few months, but if you decide you want to commit, this could be a platform to work with California, the West, the United States and the world. And it clicked for me early on. I'm like, yeah, San Francisco gave me incredible wings. And when, when a city like that gives you wings and I grew up there, had my club kid moments, found my most authentic self. And sometimes you're not meant to stay in that bubble, but you're meant to take those wings and fly. And I had literally closed my eyes around this right before I, created dancing with the drag stars where i i remember i was sitting at the gym and i was on a row machine and i was going through a a, a period where i'd accomplished stuff but i didn't know where i wanted to go and i made a wish i closed my eyes and i remember specifically saying please powers that be give me a new exciting opportunity let the vehicle be work through which i will be able to travel explore as many other communities and make a true difference in my life and when I was at that dinner with this gentleman, Mark Carson, it clicked for me. I'm like, wait a minute. This is the path to the wish that I made. I had this ma- magical journey creating something that put me on, on the map of Dancing with the Drag Stars. And then here, I believe, is a path where I can have this travel. I can experience and become a part of these many more communities that I dreamed of as a kid when there was nothing for me. And maybe I can make a difference. And I'll tell you what. I mean, Stoli is a great brand. Obviously, I, I was a drinker. But this platform for me as ambassador, it's very ambassador heavy. And I love our products. Our brands are exceptional, but it's about the platform that Iconic and Global Brand gave me to be able to set foot graciously in so many communities and create programming similar to when I first saw the coat check guy go from Clark Kent to super, Superman in my eyes on the dance floor of Club Heat with his beautiful dance partner, bringing class and something unexpected to the gay world, which I had been told, you know, was seedy and wrong growing up. But I was discovering this beauty to have the chance to try to bring production like Stoli Guy or the Key West Cocktail Classic, which has become the world's largest LGBTQ bartender celebration and competition, giving all prize money back to charity, but traveling the country, I did it for seven years until COVID. And by the way, I believe we're talking about bringing it back as soon as possible. But to have the opportunity to bring the unexpected, to bring production, to bring song, to bring put ballroom dancers on stage during my shows. You know, what what a blessing. And the fact that Stoli as a company has let me be me. You will see photos of me, yes. Back in 2011, 12, I was in a tutu phase. I was putting on tutus and high heel boots, as high, the higher, the better for my Stoli events in San Francisco. And I've really never, in a world, in the, the spirits world, you know, it's, it's traditionally a, a cisgender white man environment in which I don't feel comfortable. But Stoli as a company, and largely because it's a, it's, it's a crazy company. I mean, people think there must be thousands of employees. No, Stoli is owned by one guy who privatized it. Um, and there's no board of directors. I think there may be 150, 160 employees globally. And that's allowed me because it, the, because the owner and management are authentically supportive of who I am as an individual in my community. They ask if they don't know something. Because of that, I have stayed for 12 years. And when I needed to take a break last year, you know, the pandemic affected all of us differently. Um, as things were supposedly opening, 
I was overwhelmed. There were a lot of changes. I, I needed to take a break. And Stoli was gracious and said, take your time. Come back when you're ready. I just recently um, did go back to the company and I couldn't be happy to be back. But when I needed that time for myself, you know, like a good family member or a friend, they were there for me and let me do that. And um, I went back to teaching and dancing, made my move to Florida, went back to the gym. I feel great, look great. And, you know, when I commit to something, I, I do commit. And I would not have made the decision to walk through that door and stick around with Stoli if there wasn't something special about it. So I'm blessed. And it's allowed me to meet people like you and so many thousands of incredible people around this country. And I never lose the fact in my mind or take for granted that I was a kid in a small town in the 80s whose life could have gone in a very different direction and the Matthew Shepherds and the people whose lives were ended, you know, the fact that we're standing and able to be given a platform. I don't care if it's Stoli, if it's Charmin toilet paper. I'll tell you what, if, if it had been Charmin after I made that wish, you probably see Harvey Milk's face <laughs> on your toilet paper today. <laughs> but that, it's Stoli and I got it granted. Gosh, my life despite some sacrifice giving up my ball you know what I was doing in ballroom for a long time it's, it's just been such a blessing I remember a couple of months ago um, when I was out visiting uh, Fort Lauderdale and go I was going to to videotape the um, the Stonewall Museum segment I have in the show and we were out at the clubs one night and accidentally stumbling into you on a street corner uh, right there. Oh, now, now, and, now we weren't literally stumbling, just to clarify, but, but figuratively. I, <laughs> just by happenstance, running into you uh, on a street corner in uh, Wilton Manors. And that's one of the first things I remember saying to you is that the thing that impresses me about Stoli and your relationship with them is they didn't try to just, you know, pink wash it. They didn't just try to say, we're going to put a little rainbow flag on one of our bottles and pretend that we're gay, and we'll show up at a couple of Pride events. I mean, the the Key West Cocktail Classic and the High Heel Drop and the things that they sponsor that you do um, embrace your your flamboyance and your personality, and they're not ashamed to be a part of that. No. They're not just saying, hey, we want some gay money. They're actually putting on, you know, events and entertainment and fundraisers that are yes. valuable to the community and they're allowing you to help them direct the, you know, where those things go, as opposed to just saying, well, yeah, we want to, you know, just put our name on as a sponsor of XYZ organization and that's it. They're being proactive. They're going above and beyond what, you know, a lot of corporations do. And your events bring a lot of attention, not only to the brand, but just to gay life in general. I mean, you know, the, the videos of the Stolympics um, are just amazing. The, um, the Key West Cocktail Classic, I've met a couple of the guys that have worked for you over the years. Um, two of them for here from Tampa, uh, Daniel and Pichai, are two of my favorite people. They are just awesome, friendly, you know, great guys. They're not stuck up, look at me, I, you know, um, work professionally as a go-go boy for Stoli or something, they're normal people. They're friendly. Um, and you brought such a, a colorful face to the brand and this whole Harvey milk concept where on multiple occasions they have, you know, remembered um, 
Harvey Milk's legacy and emblazoned it on their bottles. Um, I have one sitting in my bar right now. And it's just, it's so cool that they would go to that level instead of just putting, absolutely, that's, in a, instead of just putting a rainbow stripe on a bottle. It's, yeah. it's incredible. Yeah. Now, the high, the high yield drop, um, this is the beginning of January. So just last week, you were in Key West doing, you know, an iconic stroke of midnight New Year's Eve event right there at Bourbon Street in Key West on Duval Street. And that's been going on for, what, 11 years, 10, 11 years? Oh, my gosh. Well, believe it or not, next next year, actually, I guess this year, New Year's Eve um, in December will be the 25th anniversary. Oh, wow. Yeah. And that's cool. Yeah, and Sushi, the the drag star who um, dropped down this past New Year's Eve, has done it every single one of those years. And we can hardly wait for the 25th anniversary. And her her outfits are almost as fabulous as yours. Well, here's a little fun fact. Well, thank you for saying that. Um, but, you know, the actually, the outfit hanging behind me just happened to be there, airing out to dry. Um, so she actually made that for me for New Year's Eve 2019 going into 20. And um, now, of course, if, if I had known uh, what kind of year 2020 was going to be, I probably would have told Sushi not to drop down at all. Just stay up there, girl. <laughs> wait, wait a minute. But um, yeah, so in Sushi, she's one of the best seamstresses um, I know. And she always looks spectacular. So I'm hoping for the 25th anniversary, I can reserve some of her time early on to make some, something really cool. And um, yeah, and um, you know, one thing that, that, made this new year's really special was that um i had a conversation with my friend bria who produces the show and the amazing joey schroeder who 25 years ago had the brilliant idea to create something special to bring not just marketing for key west but the visibility that we need to make sure we keep manifesting to say hey we are here and we're fabulous and this this is our community he had the idea to drop a high heel off the top of his bar bourbon street pub and um so i i talked to joey and bria and we came up with the idea that this year out of gratitude for the fact that we can get together again and and that we need to remember and give back and celebrate our past so that we can live in the present while looking ahead to an incredible future for everyone in the world we decided to create the first ever Key West New Year's Legacy Award. And so at about 10.30 on stage, I was able to ask the the audience to, to be a little, a little quiet for a moment while I called their attention to, within eyesight, a beautiful mural that was painted in 2019 by artist Lisa Marie Thalhammer to celebrate the 50th anniversary of the Stonewall Riots. We all know were the genesis of really every single pride celebration and so much equality that we enjoy today. And then Stonewall was, you know, one of the original gay bars and safe spaces that shook the world. And, um, and so, you know, in 2019, Stoli, um, was amazing and let me work with Lisa Marie and create a Stoli Spirit of Stonewall bottle to support the charitable organization of Stonewall, which is the Stonewall In Gives Back initiative. And there's a woman named Stacy Lentz, who's become a great friend, 
who um, is an, an owner of Stonewall, really a caretaker of its legacy and a reason why it stands today in Greenwich Village still. And the Stonewall Inn Gives Back Initiative um, fundraises to bring pride events, organizations, community centers to towns across the United States and beyond who, who still, believe it or not, don't have the um, the equality and the, the community that we we do have in so many places. So we presented Stacy with this award. She was she came down to Key West, stood on stage with us, and um, I was really impressed by the audience that they paid attention, and there were even some tears. And so it was a real real full circle for me as a person that I got to be on that stage with the gratitude for being able to 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 be together, um, helping to hand out this this important award. We are so grateful to you for, you know, all the things that you've done with the gay community, whether on, on your own or through Stoli or through other connections that you've made over the years. I have to admit, I'm a little disappointed that I didn't get the Legacy Award this year. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's the first annual art, so there will be many more to come and who knows maybe we'll turn it into a full-on award show and by all means you deserve to be you've deserved to be there but it's just so great to see all this energy in the community and to see people like you who have not just been a flash in the pan and said well you know for three or four years I'm gonna do something and then I'm gonna wander off into the into the prairie somewhere you've actually been a fixture in the community for several decades and been out there doing your thing, being yourself and, and helping bring that identity to an iconic um, brand as well. I happen to be a, a big fan of Stoli Vanilla also. I lived in um, Austin, Texas at the late nineties, early two thousands. And a guy that I was dating there was a, a professor of, Gay film studies at the University of Texas, which was, it blew my mind they had such a thing. Um, but he, on our first date, I went over to his house and he poured me a drink and it was totally vanilla and Coke. And for, I can't tell you how long, that was all I drank, was totally vanilla and Coke. And mm-hmm. it was just, it was so awesome. But I'm so glad that you've, you've connected with, with them, that you've continued, that you've decided to stay with them for at least I guess another year or so um, and to keep their brand in the forefront and bring us all these wonderful events like the Stolympics and uh, the Key West cocktail classic and the high heel drop, because that's all such a colorful part of our history. And we really appreciate all that you've done with that. Yeah, no, thank you. It's, it's, I mean, it's, you know, I've, I think I've, I, I've lived such a blessed life and, you know, and I, and again, I mean, we can root everything back, again, to the importance of gay bars as the original community centers and safe spaces, and to get to celebrate that via an iconic global brand like Stoli, um, you know, gives me probably just as much happiness as it does, hopefully, for the people that I get to interact with. One thing with Stoli that, you know, really just made me so happy, it was earlier this year before I, I, I took my sabbatical, was that um, I was invited to sit in on quite a few really brilliant meetings with the thought leaders, the CEO, the you know brilliant marketing people at Stoli as um, the brand was working to create the future of the uh, of the brand, and 
the the correct platform. And you know, some of these meetings were at four or five in the morning. I'm not a not a morning person, but um, that's when when we used to go to bed in New York. But um, you know, during these meetings, we were we were brainstorming what are the words that should define the future of the brand and a word that's very important to our community, you know, just seemed obvious to me, liberation, you know, for so many reasons. And when I said that word, you know, all these brilliant people and leaders of the company stopped and said, yes, that's, that's it and adopted it. And so Stoli has been, um, you know, re-emerging with this incredible platform called Liberate Your Spirit all about bringing people together to make the world a better place. And I realized that's what I'm passionate about. That's what I've been getting to do over these past 12 years outside of my incredible San Francisco bubble that gave me these wings is to try to create events for people to come together safely, to give them a purpose, to fundraise along the way, to put people on stage with the Cocktail Classic or Stoli Guy, give them their own platform like I was given to become their most powerful authentic selves. And my God, if any of us can find an organization, a company to uplift us for a platform like I've been given, that is such a blessing, you know? And so I'm the luckiest kid in the world to to do what I do and to work with the people I get to. And, you know, you've also had the endorsement and the interaction with people like Lisa Marie, Lance Bass, Bruce Valanche, people that are iconic and well-known around the world. And they could have easily said, you know, ah, Stoli, Cocktail Classic, High Heels, who cares? Mm-hmm. But sure. they've all been a part of some of the events yeah. that you've done. And they're, you know, it's just, it's just amazing to me that to get that kind of, um, of support from the community like that. Yeah. You know, and uh, Bruce Lanch, my gosh, one of my favorite people in the world. I, I truly, I, of course, I look up to him, and and I think I've been a fan since the infamous um, Star Wars holiday special in 1977, which I know George <laughs> Lucas wants to pretend never happened. Um, but um, you know, to to get to call Bruce Valanche a friend, to get to be on stage with him, um, learning from him so so often, no one's wittier. Um, yeah, as I have to, I have to pinch myself. But you know, we manifest. I believe very much that when we are allowed to be our authentic selves and to dream and imagine, we we manifest our reality. And there's so many people like Bruce, um, another great person, Jay Rodriguez, who who you know is groundbreaking with Queer Eye. It was, what a groundbreaking show to get to know him and people using their visibility and platforms for visibility for our community. It's just incredible to me you know and um so again i'm i'm super lucky well i thank you for taking your time to tell us these stories and share some of these memories with us so that not only the people around now can hear about them but so that they're preserved for the future because you know our history is important and you've been a part of it thank you no thank you thank you art smith and you know what even as i mean you know we are seeing some gay bars close and a lot of it, you know, is because we, we were getting some of what we fought for, which is we, you know, may, some people say we don't need gay, gay bars, but you know what, I'm so glad you're doing what you're doing because, you know, we, again, we can't take for granted why we get to have these fabulous open conversations and be our true selves. It's, it, it's for a lot of us, 
it's because of the bars. And there's always, I think, a place to celebrate the meaning of our gay bar community because it is different than a heteronormative straight bar. Very special. And may you um, continue to speak with interesting people and catalog as many of these incredible memories and community centers and safe spaces that were, are, and always will be the bars as possible. That concludes another episode of the Gay Archive Show. For more information about this episode or to find more episodes, visit gaybarchives.com.